session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, studio number 310-441-0555. I'll be doing the books today. Uh, the book for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show is Viral Justice by Ruha Benjamin. Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. And, um, you know, this book, I'd ordered it actually about a m- month ago and it just came out. But I think it also is relevant to what's going on in Iran, but just in general, how we try to grow the world we want, taking small actions that lead to big things. Talking about big things, the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is On Revolutions, Unruly Politics in the Contemporary World. And there are six authors who are all social scientists who study um, social movements, revolutions, things of that nature. Colin J. Beck, Lada Bukovansky, Erica Chenoweth, George Lawson, Sharon Erickson Nepstad and Daniel P. Ritter. And uh, I wanted to read this book because with everything that's happening in Iran, I thought it could be good to be better informed about things like social movements, revolutions, from scholars who have studied the history uh, and understand much better than I do, of course, um, to inform myself better how I can understand the current situation in Iran with more information, more knowledge, while also recognizing that every situation is unique. And, and I'll, I'll touch on things they bring on the book at the end of the book, uh, maybe even in the next segment, that I think are quite relevant about even being aware of what we talk about and how we talk about things, because when we talk about something that's ongoing especially, um, we are part of what we're talking about in a sense. So we can affect it, impact it in ways that we also have to be mindful of, and actually the authors get into that, the ethics of studying revolutions and revolutionary scholarship and how they share that information with others that I thought was actually quite insightful. So uh, the book begins by looking at what the authors describe some unhelpful dichotomies, these false dichotomies that exist or they feel have existed in the studies of revolutions and that they think when we think of things in these dichotomies we lose sight of the bigger picture of really what's going on and the nuances that are there so uh, the first part it talks about social versus political dichotomy when it comes to revolution so social is a more sweeping everything in a way changes whereas political is more just even maybe the people in office or some part of the political system or even like a a coup d'etat might have that if just there's a new ruler and so if we have this dichotomy it might make things more short-sighted when we try to understand what what's going on there the next one is agency versus structure so this is this dichotomy in the school of thinking related to revolutions where agency me is looking at individual actors or groups of actors and what they do their agency 
kind of like their free will being what causes a revolution, whereas structure is basically saying that the structures that were in place made um, revolution inevitable. So it wasn't really the people or individuals who had certain ideas or actions that changed things, just the ways things were going made it that revolution essentially had to happen. And so we can see that this dichotomy would probably be very limiting to think it's either individual actors that no matter what were able to make a revolution or that it is, um, you know, individuals uh, or the structure itself that makes it happen. So it's going to be something between. And in that chapter, they, they offered something of looking at this, not to call it hybrid, but looking at both sides of it. Uh, structurally situated agency which i thought was interesting so it's kind of combining them both or socially embedded action the sense that what people decide to do even of course is affected by what's going on around them and what they do affects the structures and vice versa so there is this interplay between the two it's never purely one or the other that either it's just these individuals that we you know turn into heroes and they did everything themselves and it was going to happen no matter what or that it was inevitable that it had to happen based on the structures that were there in place. Another key one, the third one they bring up in these dichotomies, is violence versus nonviolence. And so sometimes we'll look at a movement and we'll try to categorize it as purely violent or nonviolent. And so they think making it this dichotomy can be unhelpful when we really consider most of what happens in in any kind of movement there's going to be some of both so even if it's primarily nonviolent, there will be some violence that might erupt here and there or within a protest something turns violent of course there's an interactions between protesters let's say and uh, the state you know either it's police military government officials of some way that might provoke violence so it's not that it's purely the movement is violent but it could turn into some violent moments and similarly, if violence is the key mode or it's a very violent revolution or revolutionary aim or structure, it also would likely include some nonviolent tactics as well that take place. And they share examples in history where a primarily nonviolent movement turned more violent and a violent one turned more nonviolent to also show that it's not like it's one thing only. Um, but this is a really important one. Even if we look at what's happening in Iran, I would say that primarily it started nonviolent and still is overwhelmingly more nonviolent. But then there's been interactions with um, police and different types of police and secret police and all that that have been violent. But of course, a lot of violence has been initiated by the state as well, which that, of course, will lead to self-defense and violence back. Uh, and there, so there's a feedback loop there as well, looking at how that things unfold. So to say, is it purely violent or nonviolent would be very limiting and wouldn't tell the full story uh, of what's going on. Not only that, even violence itself has to be defined and can have def different definitions. Some people will say that if you destroy property, that is violent, which I could see that. Or for others, it's no, it's only if you, let's say, hurt people or attack people, that's violent. So is lighting um, something on fire violence or not? 
uh, that that's something we ha- we could think about. And on top of that, if the state is cracking down on protesters and they respond, are they being violent or do we consider that violence or is that self-defense? Is it somewhere in between? So again, this dichotomy can be unhelpful. And they're saying that in the history of studying revolutions, at times things have been put into these dichotomies, but really that can make it unhelpful in understanding how revolutions come about, what's actually going on. Now, that being said, one of the authors, um, Erica Chenoweth, uh, holds a database, which, you know, I actually thought it was interesting, and I'm sure she writes about this, but that itself looks like a dichotomy because they look at nonviolent versus violent revolutions throughout history. And what they find is that there have been more nonviolent revolutions more recently, and more of those are successful or have been successful than the violent ones. So again, they, they are, I'm sure, in some way categorizing, and that is a dichotomy, but looking at the overwhelming um, evidence, they say that it does seem that it's more likely in recent years nonviolence, but that itself is nuanced and complicated um, because just the nonviolence alone can work, but what usually happens, and I heard some interviews with that author, uh, Erica Chenoweth, who is one of the authors of this book, um, saying that it's not just the protests and things can have an impact, of course, but it's using or mobilizing or getting into different pillars of support for the current government or the current system that also is important. So government officials, Uh, military or police officials, those types of individuals or those groups can be really important to lead to the success of a movement that if you don't uh, galvanize people and bring people together, it it won't help. And related to the violence and nonviolence, one of the things in recent years that seems to happen is that when you have a violent movement or a primarily violent movement, or has more aggression and violence, it can be harder to bring in the masses because many people won't join a violent type of movement but will be very in favor of a nonviolent movement. Even they, they I heard her talking about um, what happened in Spain, I think it was in 2011, the 15M or M15 movement, and there was violence that it seemed to be partially instigated by forces that were the security forces, police forces, but that the support from people who were not totally aligned with the group went down. So you can lose some support when people become um, violent or when they see the violence, it could change the way the public perceives the movement. So that's something that also has to be taken into account. So we can see how complex it is. And as I said, this is all information. It's good to know and good to understand, but each case can be unique. And so we can't think, well, if this is what the data is showing us, then we know exactly what needs to happen in Iran. It's it's not going to be that clear cut, but there can be um, messages, ideas, and things that we can take from this to better understand the situation. Because even if we say, uh, let's say a nonviolent revolution is going to be more likely successful or the statistics show it's more successful, that means, let's say, it's like 50% success versus 25% for the violent ones. That still is, you know, half the time it doesn't work and then each case can be unique. So that's something we have to be very mindful of. Um, But that one is something that I I know I've heard people talk about. Should it be violent? Should it be nonviolent? It could be important to recognize that it's probably more nuanced than that. The fourth dichotomy that they talk about is success versus failure, and that this is even uh, very simplified, that oftentimes people just think of success. Well, did you get the 
current leader out, let's say it's a dictator or a current system of government, that's success. Um, but they talk about how revolutions are almost by definition going to be uh, have shortcomings, that you're never going to purely create that utopia or that revolutionary ideology that is sparking the movement rarely is what actually materializes in reality. Um, but so we have to be aware of when we look at success and failure, not just to think of it as some clear-cut um, type of an issue. And even that you have to look to the future to really understand a revolution. Okay, the dictator's gone, but what's happening now? Even we see sometimes the dictator's gone, but something worse comes in. Some people would likely say that's what happened in Iran in the 1979 revolution. But also, um, sometimes the emperor or the ruler comes back or uh, a different body comes in and institutes the same things. Because even if you have a revolution, usually you still need to keep some people that are part of the administration, let's say that even are part of the bureaucracy that keep things running, you usually don't get rid of every single person that works in the government. So often we see these carryover effects that happen. And so to really judge a revolution, we have to be more mindful of more factors than just did we get rid of the current person or people in power, uh, and also have a wider scale um, lens when we're looking at what's going on. And, and the fifth dichotomy they discuss is domestic versus international. And so there's a tendency to think, well, it's the Iranian revolution, it's about Iran. And of course it is, it's not to say it's not about Iran, but if we don't think of the international factors, we might be limited in how we understand what's happening. And actually, in the book, in talking about this dichotomy, they went into some detail about the Iranian Revolution of 1979. That, of course, there were so many factors within Iran that played a huge part of what happened, obviously. But if we don't look at the international context, we'll miss a lot of what led to that, including relations with uh, the United States, which the Shah was... Uh, increasing when it came to huge amounts of money and deals that were being put between Iran and, and the U.S., but really that the Shah was more isolated in that way as well, that it was about him and the U.S. more than the people were really receiving that, and he was, it seems like, getting more and more isolated from the people, um, but then with uh, administrations changing, President Carter coming into power and he being much more about human rights. It impacted the ways that the Shah could crack down on protesters in his own country. In some ways, it had an effect and a whole host of other factors that we can recognize. Yes, and of course, people will say the U.S. or the U.K. came in and did certain things. And there's interventions as well that countries might do that obviously have an impact. So looking at the international relationships, even economics, of course, a country has its economic situation and economic things going on, but always uh, economic factors will be impacted by international factors, international markets, uh, trade, tr embargoes, um, sanctions, all these types of things. And of course, just the global market impacts everybody. So to look at things as purely domestic or international is also a false dichotomy that uh, would leave a lot out of our understanding of a revolution or movements of that sort. So after the break, uh, I'll continue talking about the book a little bit more, especially what they talk about near the end, looking at ethics in revolution or revolutionary research, being aware of how what we talk about and how we talk about things and what we study impacts people in a very real way that we have to be mindful of and, and some connections to even all of us and what we share and talk about. So this is the book on revolutions. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book on revolutions, unruly politics in the contemporary world um, by, as I mentioned, several authors who are all social scientists, um, professors at different universities, even some in different countries, Stockholm, some in the United States, um, some in even Australia. Uh, so in the, the first part of the book, a big, big part of it is about these dichotomies in how we study revolution. So the book is written by six scholars who study social movements, revolutions, things of that sort. And so it's a lot about on how looking at how we study and look at these events, these parts of history. Um, and within that, there's histories of different revolutions that come up in Ukraine, all over the world. They try to made it, make it as di diverse as they could. Um, but in some ways, it's two other scholars of revolutions, but you as an individual of the public, myself, I learned a lot from it, both history and also how revolutions are looked at and things to consider. And in the second section of the book, it's even more about looking at how people in the field study revolutions and some things to think about, including some ethical concerns, which are quite fascinating to me to think about. Because as a psychologist, I have to be aware of the things I talk about on the show because people might take them and apply them to their their life for better or worse and that's the thing i have to be careful about for hopefully better but it could be for worse and so i have to be mindful when i'm talking about different things of how could this be used how could it be misused what's the messages i'm sending uh, all sorts of things of that nature so of course this is not research but i'm sharing ideas and have to be aware that that can have an impact on people's lives of course in a smaller scale but all very intimate a version of that in therapy, of course, with your clients, you're mindful of helping them, doing no harm, uh, being aware of how much to get involved, not get involved. All those things are uh, very important factors to consider. And so individuals who are studying revolutions, of course, there's the history that they might try to understand what happened in the Iranian revolution in 1979 and leading up to it and afterwards. And that can be important to study that. But they're not going to just talk about history and it stays in history, people may use that research, that study, that scholarship to affect lives now. And so, for example, um, they might talk about what makes unarmed revolutions work, ones that are more nonviolent, but then governments could read that and authoritarian could read that and try to understand how to squash people who are in the streets in some way to challenge them. And so, they can say, I don't care, I'm just trying to put the, the information out there, but they make a very good point that there has to be a self-consciousness about what is happening, how the information can get used, misused, abused, used to bring about good or bad, even trying to understand what does that mean, good or bad. So that was one of the, the issues they bring up, that you can say my research has no values or has no bias or has no perspective, but it always does. And so we're much better off rather than pretending like there's no bias or no perspective or no values here, acknowledging those things. Okay, I'm coming from this perspective, or I have the mindset that um, democracy is better than uh, non-democratic -democ type of systems, or I have the bias that 
um, you know, all rights should be for everyone and we should move towards human rights and anything that gets away of that, those people should not be in power. And so we have different biases and those are pretty, maybe sound even obvious, but there can be bigger ones or less obvious ones than that as well. But it's important to be aware of that. But this impact that we can have, you know, as they talked about in the book, it's that they're, they're studying these things, talking about them, but they're part of that as well. Because we can see so many people like uh, Karl Marx or even Gandhi who wrote about these types of issues of revolutions, of movements, of people, of um, how to make things come about. But they were also actors in that as well. Gandhi didn't just write about nonviolence. He practiced it very strongly and successfully. So we can think that we're just writing about these things or talking about them but that line is very blurry between research and practice so studying it is one thing and practicing it is not something completely different and people will look at what you're researching and use that in practice and so you have to think of that just like if you're creating some type of um, weaponry research you have to be aware of who can use that research for good and for bad you can't just say well, i'm just doing the science part of it well you have to be aware of who's seeing it, how it gets seen, and all those types of things. So I, I really thought that part was interesting to look at these different perspectives, thoughts they had on understanding the impacts that people can have. Because I was thinking about that myself, even as we we talk about, I talk about these issues on my show, posting things on social media, something we've talked about. And of course, the reason why we say keep posting on social media is because we think it can have an impact. I was talking about this before, that we have to be aware that the impact is obviously uh, often very slow or you won't necessarily see anything from any one thing you do, but look at your responsibility and trying to meet that responsibility. Uh, but overall, of course, we're doing it because we think it can have an impact, amplifying the voices and the stories of the people in Iran, spreading awareness, getting more support from the international community international governments, the UN, other Amnesty International, other organizations that may be able to have some impact. So we're doing it to have an impact, but we have to be mindful of that impact. And so a way this came to my mind very recently and clearly was uh, with this case of El-Naz Rekabi, I hope I'm saying that right, the Iranian um, a climber who was competing in a competition in Korea and, you know, competed without a hijab on, which was considered a big deal because that was, you know, mandatory for her to compete as far as from the Iranian government for her to wear that while being public, being even while she's competing. Um, that was considered a big deal. And myself included and so many others shared the video of her climbing without a hijab and praising her and giving her support. And, you know, giving her all these accolades and, you know, because we were so proud, we thought, of course, there's always going to be interpretation. We don't know, but that that was in some way showing solidarity to the people of Iran and the movement in Iran and in a way a sign of protest. Now, then we saw accounts the next day that she had gone missing or people didn't know where she was. And I even posted that story. These things are happening in a very fast paced way. You try to verify and you try to get news from trusted sources, but you don't know exactly what's happening, of course, because I, I, I posted that and I heard people saying, no, she's in Dubai or no, she's here. Or it turns out this happened or they confiscated her passport, but she's okay. Um, so I didn't know what was going on, but I shared that news. And then there was reports that she was going to be arrested because of what she did. 
I don't know, you know, what happened exactly there. But even before all this, I did have this feeling of, okay, so I, along with so many people, shared her story. But did that then make her more a target of getting, you know, more some a negative reaction from the government? That if it was not made to be a big deal, I'm sure they would have noticed maybe something would have happened. But was there more of a sense that there has to be a response? So it's not that it's just we're talking into a vacuum. We're obviously talking and spreading words and information because we think it can have an impact. But the impacts can be multiple. It's not just one way. I remember one time I also posted a video from someone in Iran a couple weeks ago, and someone rightfully sent me a message saying cover his face because he was in Iran. And well, the more that gets publicized, maybe he can face uh, some, some, you know, get arrested or God forbid worse. So understandable, protecting those people as well. So it's not so clear, of course, amplify the voices, share the stories. But what happens when we share someone's story and then they get a negative response? Um, you know, Shervin's song, Baraya, which has become the anthem of this revolution, it was such a beautiful song, captured so much of what's going on. People shared it, but of course it became so popular that he got arrested. If his song did not get popular, he wouldn't have gotten arrested. I'm sure other people have made songs, but no one heard them or they didn't get that much attention. So nothing happened. So it's a tough thing where it's like, of course, we like the song. We think the song is good. And now we're even hoping he wins a Grammy for that, for social change. But it has an impact. And so it's not always so black and white. I still think we have to amplify the voices and the stories. But it did make me think about, well, th these things are a little bit complex. What I, the latest I heard on El Nazar Kabi was that she... Uh, I saw a video where it seemed like, you know, again, it's lots of assumptions. It seems pretty obvious uh, type of a false confession. You know, it's kind of like the it was not intentional or something happened. And uh, it seems very forced and coerced. I just saw one video, so I can't say that with any definitive proof. But the feeling was definitely that. And we know that there's a long history of that, of people doing something and then having to make a confession or share that, oh, no, I didn't mean it in this way. It was totally in that way. And often we expect that that's because there's been uh, the coercion comes from the threat of uh, being imprisoned or worse that they might experience. So that's the latest that I heard. Uh, and this is a very fast moving story. So right now it's 1230 p.m. here in the United States in Los Angeles on Wednesday. Maybe by tomorrow we'll know a lot more or things have changed uh, in, a, in a big way regarding the story. But nonetheless, it did make me think about this same theme from the book that, you know, we are still part of the society and part of things that are happening. So when we share things or when we talk about things, it has an impact that isn't just purely always good. But I don't know if that means we shouldn't be sharing the stories, but just something to be mindful of how we share things or what we share. Uh, even you do see videos people share where their faces are covered or they're wearing a mask. And you can understand that their, their lives and their families' lives can be uh, in jeopardy if they are too. Uh, not do those things. So, um, as I said, that I thought was interesting. I, I appreciated that these scholars discussed this in, when talking about this uh, in their book about revolutions, which is such an important um, topic to study and to understand better of what hap has happened and what's going to happen, but to recognize that they're talking about something that's so impactful in people's lives, literally life and death and quality of life and so many other things, um, that it could also be used and abused by other people. So they're finding that, let's say, nonviolent protests and nonviolent movements can be very successful. But with that information, if we understand how it works, well, then, of course, 
there can be responses by the regimes and the dictators to counteract the ways that these things become successful. So it's a type of feedback loop. Then, you know, they would have to be studying themselves, let's say, oh, based on this type of research that was spread, it seems that dictators started responding in this way. And so it no longer worked. So something else will have to work. So um, they did talk about this as well at the end of the book, that revolutions are not some static thing. They evolve as well with society, with the world, with technology. We see how much social media plays a part in movements now. And that was something actually in the, the Arab Spring that had considerable impact that maybe it couldn't have happened before. But then then the regimes re- retaliate by shutting down Internet, shutting down access to certain things. And so that itself becomes another element or area of war or element of, of back and forth that people experience. So I, I recommend this book. As I said, they're definitely written in an academic light but as someone who's not in in academia myself i could get a lot out of seeing how they study revolutions understanding better understanding some of the scholars in revolutionary research and writing and philosophy and their thoughts on things looking at these different distinctions that yes there are these dichotomies that i talked about success failure violent nonviolent, domestic international but also that they're not uh, without value so we understand what those things mean but not falling victim to just seeing things in purely dichotomous ways. So I think if you want to be better informed about what's happening in Iran, there's a lot of resources that we can research, but I think this is a good book to add to your um, study to help better understand what's going on, maybe get some better insights, a better understanding of what has happened in the past and what can happen now. Because uh, I, I know another thing is it's hard to even know what to be hopeful for right now. How is this thing supposed to go? Um, I will add this based on what I've read, and I've mentioned this a few times, and I've heard many people say it, but I think it's worth repeating, that although things seem so intense and so much is happening, which is true, and even though things might feel different, which I think is also true this time compared to past times with with this regime, even in the last years, it doesn't mean it's going to happen quickly. Again, Uh, Every situation is unique, so something could happen and things do happen quickly. But oftentimes, these types of movements uh, turning into revolutions takes time. And so we I say that for those of us, especially outside who I'm talking to, because those inside of Iran will have to decide for themselves and they make the decisions of what they think is best to do. But for us who are supporting the people in Iran and you want to share their voices, keep in mind that this could take a long time. And I say that not to be pessimistic, but to be realistic and also to prevent, hopefully, a burning out or a giving up, where if we don't see some huge change within a a week or a couple weeks or a month, we think it's over and it can't happen and we stop supporting because this is likely to be a marathon, not a sprint. And speaking of which, this coming Saturday seems to be a global day of action and there are protests and rallies around the world. So please look to see what's closest to you here in LA. It'll be in downtown Los Angeles starting at 11 a.m. on on Saturday. So I hope you will continue to give your support and make sure our voices are heard, which really means making sure the voices of the people of Iran continue to be heard. Okay, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, You know, these days it's been 
hard to talk about anything other than Iran. Everyone I talk to, it comes up even on the show. Uh, or what I'm posting, you know, this book on revolutions was the most um, spot-on book I could have to what, what's happening in a moment. Uh, but in general, even when I'm posting the books lately, it could feel like uh, tone deaf or missing the point of what ev- what's on everyone's mind. I do think that at some level, life has to continue and we take care of ourselves as well. doesn't mean we ever forget and we keep staying focused, keep staying consistent uh, about what's happening in Iran. But of course, um, people have other things that are happening as well. And when I see clients these days, very often Iran is something that comes up and they discuss that and how it's affecting them. And actually, it's been really meaningful at times to discuss how it's bringing up their own feelings about what they went through if they did uh, live in Iran for quite some time or just their own experiences, connections. Uh, It's bringing up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. So something to be aware of that you might be experiencing some intense feelings about what you're seeing. Of course, just the news itself and the images and what people are going through, that's bringing a lot of emotions. And then on top of that, it can trigger feelings from our own pasts and our own experiences and our own uh, pains and and angers that might be triggered by that as well. Uh, but I did want to talk about just something a little bit different about Uh, psychology, personality, different characteristics, something that I've talked about before but came to my mind recently and worth discussing um, that, you know, when we look at personality characteristics and ways of being, sometimes, you know, we talk about, I was talking about false dichotomies in this book, there are ways that we can think of things as good or bad. Well, is it good to be this way or bad to be this way or what's the right way to be? And really, when we look at to me, the best way of being is having a flexibility that can allow us to respond to different situations in different ways with different aspects of ourselves. So, for example, if you are, um, you know, working out and you want to tap into like that more aggression or that strength, you might act a certain way or bring out that part of yourself. But then if you go hold a baby, you don't want to walk into it with that same aggressive mindset. That's not going to be good. You need to tap into a more nurturing, warm type of a part of yourself and express that there. And so is it good to be aggressive or good to be warm? It could depend on the context. And so what we see is often most of us have found ways of being that's comfortable for us, but is usually limited so that we are certain ways or it's comfortable for us to be certain types of ways, but we're not comfortable being other ways. And then when situations might ask for that, we still fall into our rigid type of way of being. So for example, the, let's say this aggressive person, let's say a guy, very aggressive, and it's good when they're exercising or doing certain things or need to assert themselves in some ways. But then if they are going to go be with their romantic partner, be with a young child, if they can't tap into a more nurturing side and they can only stay in that aggressive side, it's not good. So it's not that it's bad to be that way, but it's bad if you're rigid in that way and you can't be flexible in how you're being. So the first thing I'll I'll talk about in this segment is about not having these dichotomies and looking for the good and bad. And in the next segment, I'll talk about how when we look at romance, one of the things that's very important is recognizing that our partner is never fully known to us, recognizing that as much as you do know them well, you obviously should if you want to be with them long term, but still you can't fully know them. But that if we extend that, 
Uh, and, and actually what happens is if we don't do that, we get bored of our partner because we think we know them, but it's some ways that we trick ourselves. And so similarly, we do that with ourselves, that we at times will think we know ourselves completely, we won't try new things, we won't try to express new ways of being within ourselves because we think we fully know ourselves, but we actually don't give ourselves the chance to express those things. And because of that, we might even feel bored with ourselves or bored with life. So in some way, we kill the passion within ourselves, just like we might kill the passion in our relationships. But so coming back to this the, the not falling into a false dichotomy. Is this emotion or this way of being good or bad? If we think of it that way, usually it's going to be much more limited. Let me give you an example, even I can speak uh, for myself and personal experience. So I think I'm an emotionally sensitive person, which um, again, it's not all good or bad. It can be good in some ways and not so good in other ways. And we look at, for example, sensitivity. I'm speaking into this microphone. And the microphones here are quite sensitive. Maybe you just even heard the sounds my mouth made. Uh, it's also a reason why we can't leave a fan on, even if it's a quote-unquote quiet fan, the microphone will still pick it up and you'll hear some loud noise. So this microphone that I'm talking into right now is very sensitive, which means that it'll pick up sounds that a not sensitive microphone won't which could be good, especially for something like radio that we wanted to capture the sound and then be able to transmit it to those of you who are listening. It, being sensitive can be good in that way, but then it can be bad in the ways, like I was saying, it might pick up on sounds that are distracting or it can get overwhelmed and it get too much feedback if it gets too much sound and that can be problematic. So is it good for the mic to be sensitive? Yes, in some ways, and then it also has issues. And so similarly, a sensitive person can be the same way. And and some of these thoughts that I'm sharing, uh, there's a great book, The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron, that talks about this issue. And I remember even when I heard that title of the book, I didn't like it. I saw it for a few years and it seemed like, oh, it's just trying to make a, like some kind of diagnosis or justify being sensitive in some ways. Probably it was because I myself being sensitive might have had some reactions about it or not wanting to see myself that way or not being that way, that might have been more difficult. So I, I remember hearing about this book years ago uh, before I read it. I don't remember when I read it, maybe it was four years ago now, but a long time before that I'd heard of it, but kind of had this negative reaction, which I think was because of those things I just mentioned, that maybe I didn't want to see myself in that way or saw it as like some way of justifying being too sensitive. And even the way I said too sensitive shows a judgment there. But uh, I think what the book was helpful for me to understand was that being sensitive, as I said, like this microphone, means that you'll pick up on things and that can be quite good. So a sensitive person will notice, for example, if someone around them is upset or uh, might notice what other people are feeling or more observant of it, they take in those things more. And that can be quite good in that way, that they'll see certain things that maybe someone else might miss. But they also might get overwhelmed more easily. And yes, maybe using that term too sensitive, they might take something to heart or be hurt by it that then hurts them and might hurt people around them because how they might respond. So in that way, it can be a not good thing or it can lead to some negative effects. You can get overwhelmed. You might need to take a break more often. And really, this is something the book talked about was that being aware of that. So you might need to be aware of getting 
overwhelmed and taking breaks in certain ways or how much you expose yourself to certain things that might impact you because you're more sensitive can be very important. But of course, in a relationship, I've experienced it the way I can be with people around me that, yeah, I can notice a lot of things. I can be sensitive to other people's feelings, even notice maybe something they're feeling that they might not be quite aware of or maybe haven't brought up yet. And, and that can be quite good in a lot of ways. But then, yeah, I can also get affected by things and get sensitive about something that they said that makes me feel bad or uh, or take something a certain way that someone else maybe wouldn't do. So someone else would not get impacted. Like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And for me, maybe it won't be fine. I'll get impacted by that. So to say my being sensitive, is it all good or all bad? I, I don't think it is either one. For me, it's been a process of getting more in touch with seeing the good of the sensitive side because I used to just see it as bad. So that for me has been important. And, and reading that book actually was part of that process of me recognizing that if I see it as all bad, I'm judging myself, then I'm even actually afraid to share my feelings with others because I think I'm being too sensitive. So it's only my fault if something bothers me, not seeing the other person's side. And then recognizing that even uh, to put it in a positive way, that sensitivity can be like a superpower or something that makes me aware of certain things in my work as a psychologist, of course, being sensitive and aware, I'll pick up on things that maybe I wouldn't if I wasn't as sensitive. So there are those benefits too. But one of my uh, that now challenges is to find ways to amplify the good parts of it and to be mindful of the negative so it doesn't impact me and seeing if I can be more flexible with it that yes I might not be able to affect how I feel in a given moment or if I have a response to something but how I deal with that I might have much more of an impact on. So that's something we all have to look at when we try to understand ourselves or people around us not to just think of them as having good or bad characteristics or thinking there's this perfect way to be, because there isn't. There isn't one way that's going to be the right way to be in all situations, but having that flexibility. And when we're in romantic relationships, very often this is something that people will recognize or that takes them some time to recognize that sometimes the things that attracts us to someone might be the same things that bother us later on on the flip side. So let's say someone who's very conservative, you know, does everything in a certain type of structured way. And now they find themselves attracted to someone who is very spontaneous, very full of life, very uh, in the moment and will do certain things just because they feel like it. And often we'll be attracted to someone who is expressing something that we've repressed in ourselves. There's some way of us connecting to it, connecting to actually a part of ourselves through them that can feel quite good. So now this person is attracted to this very spontaneous, you know, free spirit kind of a person and it feels good. But then after some time, that spontaneity, that free spirit, there's also that part where it's not stable, not consistent, not being, let's say, as structured as they actually like most of the time. So over time, it likely will start to bother that person. And so now you might hear them complain, oh, you know, my partner is so unpredictable or they do this or they do that and I don't like it. I never know what they want to do or last moment they want to change the plans and I put all this time into the plans. And so they're annoyed by it and that's what they're remembering now. But sometimes even this happens in couples therapy where I ask them to think about what attracted them to the person or we look at the flip side of that feeling and sometimes they'll realize, yeah, that's actually what drew me to them was that spontaneity, but now it's annoying me. 
And so this is why it's not that being spontaneous is all good and or all bad, but that it's that in different situations, in different contexts, and with flexibility, it can be good or bad. Or at moments it's good, and other moments it won't feel so good. So this can be important for us to keep in mind in our relationships that very often the things that bother us about our partner are actually things that we were attracted to because of the other side of it, or what feels like the good side to us, and now this is the bad part. And this can be good one, we communicate, we make it clear what's going on, but also for us to take some ownership of that, because sometimes you're like, oh, look at my partner, so, you know, irresponsible, or they're not doing things on time. But then if I realize, oh, wait, maybe I, I picked that person where I was attracted because I liked parts of that, or they do make my life more fun still because of that spontaneity at times, it could give us a different feeling about that where it won't feel so much like just blaming the partner that it's all your fault it's realizing okay i'm part of this too i chose you because i like this other side so uh, you know i'm, I'm going to deal with this side just like i don't know let's say you get a car you really like but it uses a lot of gas and so you're annoyed that it uses a lot of gas like, well yeah it has this really nice engine and drives uh, fast and i like that so i deal with the fact that it uses a lot of gas that was not an anti uh climate type of a comment. I don't think we should be using lots of gas, but recognizing that sometimes the things we want, they have a part of it that we might not like or might be a bit of a nuisance, but we take it as a whole. So if you look at your partner, you say, yes, sometimes they can be inconsistent or might change plans last minute and that bothers me, but I do appreciate that they also make life more fun or get me out of my shell. And that's something that I want to appreciate too. Both things can be true and usually are true. So this this segment I wanted to talk about and wrapping it up here, looking at different personality characteristics, look at different ways of being, that rarely is that there's one good way to be, especially all the time. We like simple rules like that. You should always be this way. You should always be that way. Never do this. Always do that. That makes things very simple because then you just follow that rule. You don't have to think much about it. But the reality of life is that it almost it never is going to be that black and white, that you always can be this way and it's always going to be good. Being generous is good, but sometimes it can have negative effects if you're not thinking of yourself or if you're doing it too much, even something like that. Um, being, uh, like I said, flexible or even being flexible, you can be too flexible that you're not holding the line sometimes. Uh, another one for me is sometimes being consistent is good, but I can have a hard time letting go or being flexible. I think, okay, I have to do this all the time. It's the reason I read a book every week for the last uh, I don't know, 300 weeks or so, but it's also sometimes makes it so I'm not flexible enough to adapt or adjust to what's going on. So I try to look at both sides and try to go into the part of it that's harder for me in moments where it might need that flexibility, but that awareness is the first step. So the next segment, I'll talk about how we also might make ourselves more rigid because it's more comfortable and how that costs us and how that might even take away the passion and excitement in our own life and the way we relate to ourselves. So let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about being mindful of personality traits, different ways of being, that they're all um, not just good and bad, they have good and bad qualities and good and bad elements and also can be good and bad with different moments or at different moments when, when life asks different things of us. Sometimes in a conversation you need to be the one that's more assertive in speaking, sometimes you need to be the one that's listening more. And of course often it's some of both, but being aware that at different times you need to show different things. So uh, we even 
tend to have modes of communication that are more comfortable for us. But if we are not mindful of how that can be limiting, we will limit how good our communication could be with the people around us and our relationships, friendships, whatever it might be. And so that last part relates to what I wanted to talk about in this segment about understanding ourselves better. So um, understanding ourselves better and how we tend to limit even getting to know ourselves because we want to be comfortable and feel safe and feel stable and don't want to risk the unknown. So in in a wonderful book called Can Love Last by Stephen Mitchell, he discussed something that for me was very eye-opening when I first read it of looking at romantic relationships. So can love last? Spoiler alert, yes, but it's not easy, but definitely yes, it can last having that loving, passionate feeling. What he talked about in that book that I found quite fascinating is that when we look at romantic relationships and marriages, one of the common things we hear, and I've heard it so many times myself, is that people say, oh, it's boring. You know, it's, yeah, I think you maybe you fall in love, you think it's exciting, but it gets so boring after a while. So this is kind of like a common complaint by married couples. Usually one of them, when they're talking to you isolated, they might not say it in front of their partner, but they'll tell you about how boring it is or enjoy your life while you're single. Or yeah, you might think you're falling in love, but don't expect that it's going to last. And one thing related to that, even this question of can love last, uh, there are brain studies that seem to support that yes, it can. So they looked at the brains and they had people who were recently falling in love and looking at their brains and they saw certain areas that were lighting up. And then they had some couples that were still saying that they were very much in love and they saw that their brains looked similar to the newly in love couples, those in the honeymoon phase. So it's not just uh, some people saying something that they're still in love. It does seem like the brains are even showing us that this this is true. Um, and one might think, oh, how lucky are those two lovebirds that are still in love with each other 20, 30 years later. But I hope we'll recognize that it's a lot less about luck and a lot more about what we do in our relationships that makes that happen. So uh, going down this path of what makes them boring, Stephen Mitchell in that book, coming back to what, what I was start talking about a few minutes ago, he discusses how when we look at passion, when we look at what gets us excited in a relationship, of course, some of it is we're getting to know someone, getting close to them, but a big part of it is the unknown. That because they're unknown, there's some sense of mystery, some sense of I still have to figure them out, still get to know about them, there's things about them I don't know yet. This contributes to the passion and that passionate feeling. Now, what happens though over time, of course, this feeling of unknown also can create an anxiety, especially when we're committing and committing for life. We don't want to feel like, well, I totally don't know or have no idea what's going to happen. We want to feel more and more like, I know, I know what's going to happen. And so what he says is in a way we trade off stability for this passion, or we trade off this sense that I know you completely, which leads to boredom because that feels safer than recognizing that I can never fully know you and will always continue to fully know you. So we think we're bored and it's almost like both partners do this, but it's kind of like we're choosing at some level to be bored because it's safer than recognizing my partner is someone I can never fully know. On top of that, every one of us 
changes and evolves as we go through life. So as much as I know him or her today, they won't stay that person. So I'll continue knowing them and they might surprise me because they start to change and even they surprise themselves. But that's something that I'm going to expect will happen in our lives. So if we can hold on to that, it could keep that flame of passion alive longer. And so love can last if we are willing to recognize that my partner is this multifaceted, complicated person that as much as I know a lot about them, and some eyes can even read their feelings and know their likes and dislikes about a lot of things, there's still parts of them I don't know. So there's this uh, notion of always be dating, and I think that's a very good one. You're still dating and getting to know each other. Even if you're committed to each other for life, you still can have that dating mindset that I'm trying to get to know you more, want to get to know you more. I want to do good things for you, take care of you. All those things don't have to go away just because the commitment has been made. So how do we relate this at an individual level? So what I'm saying is that we also do this with ourselves, that each one of us is capable of much more than we realize. Each one of us is capable of acting in ways, expressing things, expressing feelings, expressing uh, even artistic abilities, interests, talking in certain ways, not talking and listening in certain ways, then more than we realize or more than we want to accept. Because it's a lot easier for us to think, I know myself, oh, I like this, I don't like this, I don't need to try this because I know I won't like it, I don't need to act in different ways, I'm just being myself. But I think we don't realize that we're exposing ourselves to a limited version of ourselves, that there's much more to us than we realize. People sometimes try some new activity when they're 55, 60 years old, like, I love this. This is so fun. And they keep doing it. It becomes a big interest for them. And so it's not that it just magically became interesting to them at 55 years old. It's that they hadn't tried it before because they weren't giving themselves the opportunity to, to see and understand themselves better. So even when we think of this idea of being yourself, sometimes, you know, I'll talk about it too, your authentic self, your true self, be that authentic self. But what being an authentic self means to me is not that there's this one version of you that you should be everywhere, but that being an authentic self means I respond to the world, the situation with my feelings and everything that is there in that moment. So even when I tell you to be your authentic self, or if I tell myself to be my authentic self, and then I say, what am I going to do tomorrow at this event? I can think about it and make some predictions, but to be genuinely my authentic self means I can't know. I have to let myself be in that situation and see what part of me comes out or how I respond or how I feel in that moment. So I think sometimes we can think of this authentic self in this static way like it's just this one thing but it's much more than that it's about being alive in each moment connecting and relating to that moment the important part is though taking away those blocks that we might have that might be more hardened for example i'm never going to be silly or i'm never going to get angry or i'm always serious or i'm always the one who makes jokes or i'm always the one that is in control or i always am the one that lets other people take control these are the ways that we might not realize there's these big blocks that doesn't allow for us to be our full authentic self in the moment because we won't let ourselves go to certain places go in certain ways within ourselves to then express that so using that same concept of getting bored in our partner, what I think unfortunately many of us have done is gotten bored with ourselves and got bored with life. 
we have decided to know ourselves and to stay in this certain box rather than explore ourselves more in a, in a way being romantic with ourself seeing that I don't fully know myself and I could see parts of myself that I never knew were there we don't want to give that opportunity because it can feel scary that what if all of a sudden you find out you like this and you don't like that or with a lot of clients I've worked with we'll talk about let's say a dream job or career but something I've realized is that often that question it just seems like it should be fun and pleasant but it comes with an anxiety for many people because if I recognize that what I want to do more than anything is not what I'm doing now, now I either have to live with that knowledge and not do it, or I have to do something about it, and that can feel very scary. Maybe I have to quit my job, change careers, go back to school, uh, move cities, move countries, do a whole bunch of things that can be scary and not easy and breaking out of my comfort zone, but that's what it will take to meet that dream. So sometimes it's a lot more comfortable to not even know what your dream is because you don't have to think about any of these things you can just stay like no this is my life and it's good and everything is is good and it can't be better and i don't have to even think about changing it that's a lot easier so when we you know you hear people say the comfort zone and comfort i'm sitting in this chair i've talked about this before i hope it's comfortable it feels good on my body that's a good kind of comfort but the comfort zone we're talking about that's unhealthy in our lives it doesn't mean it's making us happy and making us feel good it's just the easy path we found, the path that doesn't make us anxious, the path that makes us feel like everything is going to be okay. But what it usually means is that we're unsatisfied, unhappy, and unfulfilled. We're not living our life to the fullest because we won't even give ourselves a chance to see what else it is we want to do. It's like if you take your child to the same park every day, and because it's easy and it's close by, you might be afraid to ask your child, do you want to go somewhere else to play? Because now maybe it's hard to find the place or it breaks the routine or does some things. So you don't even ask your child genuinely what they want because you're afraid of their answer. Similarly, we're oftentimes afraid to ask ourselves what we genuinely want because we're afraid that the answer will mean we have to break out of our comfort zone, do something that we're not sure we can do, maybe face potential failure, embarrassment, whatever the other feelings that might come up for us when we think of doing something new, we would have to face those things. But I encourage us to be more open to looking at ourselves as someone, as strange as it sounds, that you don't fully know. You can't know how you're going to feel when you hear a song you've never heard before. You might say, oh, I know I won't like it, or I know that guy, I won't like that artist's song, or I won't do this, but you have to play the song and see how you feel. You're like, oh, actually, I kind of like this song. I, I didn't know. Um, I was talking about this last week and how to do nothing. We, we do live in this world where things get curated to us. You go on Spotify or Apple Music, the music you listen to, they pick songs that you they think you're going to like. And often they're right because it's similar to other songs you liked and other artists you liked. But really, if you wanted to see all the music you could like, you would have to hear things that are very different from those things that sometimes might surprise you. Go, Actually, I really like, I never even knew about this kind of music or I never thought I would like this kind of music, but I really do. So I hope we will think about this when we look at ourselves, that we might not even realize it because we're so accustomed to acting a certain way that there's parts of ourselves that we haven't even accessed ourselves. Jung might talk about the shadow, that there's some feelings or elements of yourself that for some reason you learned is better to put away. 
You, you saw that whenever you acted a certain way, your parents responded poorly. So let's put that away. Anytime I'm sad, they got so negative about it. They made me feel bad or they took away their love. So what if I'm the person who never gets sad and I'm always happy? And so I work with people in therapy. Sometimes like, no, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sad about this thing or I've never felt sad about that or there's nothing to be sad about. But slowly as we get a little bit deeper, they might get a little bit more comfortable dipping into that pool that's there. We see that there's a lot of sadness that they haven't expressed, but it never felt safe for them to express that. And so it's not to say feeling sad is good, but when we cut off any parts of ourselves, we limit the experiences that we can have. It's just like limiting a part of our, our cutting off a part of our body from moving. Just like, let's say, going back to this music analogy, if you're dancing to music, but you say you're never going to move your legs. Well, there's going to be limits to how you can dance. You can still have fun. Like, no, I'm having a great time, but you're limiting the experience that you can have. And so I think that we often, if we find ourselves bored with life, part of that is that we are bored with ourselves because we're not giving ourselves the chance to become or show more aspects of ourselves than we can realize. Uh, sometimes they say, if you're bored, you're boring. Like if you go to a party and say you're bored, well, that means you're not able to find something interesting in it and engage in a way that makes you have a good time. The world is not going to be there to entertain you. You have to find your interests and find something that makes you entertain and have a good time. And so when you look at your own life, if you're bored, that's going to be up to you to break out of that shell of doing things the same way over and over again. And so, yes, think about yourself this way. Think about your partner this way. You don't fully know them. Embrace that uncertainty. Embrace that passion that comes alive when I realize I still get to know you. And make sure you keep it for yourself as well. You're still getting to know yourself. Who am I? Who do I want to let myself be? Who am I not letting myself be because it doesn't feel safe or okay for me? And remembering that there isn't one good way to be. Every type of personality trait and characteristic has good and bad sides and can be good and bad in different moments. But the more flexible we are, the more of a repertoire we have, the more we can engage life in a alive and authentic type of way. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in this segment here during the commercial break was talking to Amir here in the studio and I touched on this earlier that we're all being affected by what's happening in Iran and everyone I talk to, whether it's clients, friends, family, uh, they're thinking about it and like just having a roller coaster of emotions. And so I say this with some respect for when we talk about those of us outside of Iran and what we're going through, it can feel uh, a bit unfair when we consider what the people in Iran are going through, which is nothing comparable and we can't even put in the same sentence or same type of thought at the same time as i'm talking to you and if you're in iran of course so much love and support for you that that you are there i do also know that most of the people that listen are not in iran and so i do want to talk to to all of us as well as we're dealing with what's happening there of how to be aware of what we go through so making it very clear that we're not focusing on what we experience because it's worse, obviously not, but that it's something that we still have to make sure we deal with and take care of. In light of what I also shared earlier, that I do think this can be 
quite a long process that we have to be ready for. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, one week, it doesn't matter what happens to me, that one week, I can suffer through it. But it does seem like this can take some time. And so because of that, I really don't want us to see large levels of of burnout or burning out. I do see very consistently people are still posting and sharing and there is a lot of energy that is there more than other times uh, and more than I've seen before. So I don't say this because I see that the energy has gotten low for what I'm witnessing of people, but I do hear a lot of stories of people who have noticed their anxiety is much more or their ability to focus on things is much less and it's affecting them. Uh, or their temper is shorter or different things like that. And so because of that, I do think it's important for us to be aware of how we are being impacted by what's going on, how we continue to take care of ourselves through all of this, because if you want to support the people of Iran, you have to make sure you can keep doing it. But if you burn out and either break down yourself or give up or don't want to do it anymore, then, well, you're going to stop helping and that's not going to be good. So taking care of ourselves as always is not a selfish act or something bad. Taking care of ourselves is our responsibility to make sure we are okay, that we are meeting our needs and making sure we're, we're doing all right. So um, something I think people can feel at times is a type of survivor's guilt. This is something I remember seeing a lot of people talk about at the beginning, that for those of us in the Iranian diaspora who are outside of Iran, around the world, we can feel that, well, we're lucky and, and those there are not, and that can make us feel guilty. Even for many women, especially, I think seeing what happened to Mahsa Amini is very painful because they know it could have been them, and that's why we have chance where we are all Mahsa or uh, Mohammed Mahsa Hastim, this feeling that we could all, it could have been any of us, which is the reality, and we want to have that feeling of connection to um, people who have suffered to not make their blood spilled in vain that we do something about it so i think that's very understandable that it brings up those feelings while at the same time it can bring this guilt of i i get to live in this comfort and other people are suffering there saturday we'll be in the streets protesting marching but we know uh, we're not really risking much by doing that we give up our saturday morning and afternoon but there isn't this fear that the people of Iran go through anytime they go to the streets. It's not the same thing. And so we can feel a guilt about that. That can feel painful and something that's hard to carry. And of course, seeing the um, the, the sad stories and the, the people who have been killed, these things are very heavy. I've found myself in tears often about what's going on there. And I know many of you have as well. And so I definitely don't promote, okay, well, it's making us sad. Let's look away completely. I don't think that's right. I'm very big on let's face the things that actually make us uncomfortable. Let's especially face reality. And if people are suffering, we don't want to turn away because when we turn away, we are just aiding the oppressors. We're taking their side when we stay silent and we don't even look at what they're doing. And that's what they want to happen. They want people to stop looking. Even that's why they want to stop the internet access in ways that people can look because that's how they can continue doing whatever it is that they want. So we can't look away, um, but not looking away doesn't mean that we have to only look at that. So uh, I know it's a personal preference and choice, but we do have to be mindful of how much we are consuming 
the news and media uh, about what's going on. I think we have to stay connected, stay informed, but be mindful of how it's affecting us, especially if, as I suggest or I think, uh, it could be a long process that we're going to have to be in this for a while. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people, they feel bad about if they're not watching, if they don't see every single thing that they can, every piece of media that comes out. I can understand that feeling, that it, it's to honor or to show some respect or to show that you care and to know what's going on uh, to anyone who is suffering. I can understand that, but I also do think we have to be aware of how much and in what ways we get impacted and how much we're doing. People are seeing bloody videos and then going to sleep. That's probably not the best for us. Again, it's not that we ignore it, but be aware of some things of timing and how we're doing um, uh, doing certain things. So I do think it is important to be mindful of the balance of taking care of ourselves and how much you stay informed. Staying focused, staying consistent is very important, but balance is still possible within that. I think that's something very important. Um, I think because of what we're seeing there, for many people and myself included, there is the sense of being more on alert. So I don't know if you've experienced this, but I haven't felt as calm as before. If I look at this last month, uh, I haven't felt as calm as I think I had felt before. And of course, I'm not the one actually under threat, but it's a sense of all this stuff that's happening there. And I was born here in the United States, but many people I've talked to, their own feelings of being in Iran, if they lived in Iran, grew up in Iran, came recently, um, their own experiences there, the feeling of living there, the feeling of dealing with the regime, dealing with the morality police, dealing with all of these different aspects of of the government and the institutions there. It, their feelings are being triggered by what's happening. Seeing people suffering brings up their own pain and suffering and worries. And so you can even feel that lack of safety that you uh, might have felt when you lived there because of what you're seeing and a reminder of all those wounds. A lot of deep wounds, a lot of old wounds are being opened up by what's happening in Iran. And so I've seen a lot of people, the anxiety has gone up for many people. Um, feelings of depression or feeling down has gone up. Feelings of anger. These are all things that are uh, on high alert and those take a lot of our energy. And that's why you might feel more drained. Uh, I've even felt a little bit more... I don't want to say sick, but even physically at times, my throat and things I felt that way. I was talking to Amir. He's been experiencing something similar of just feeling sick and lingering for a while. And others as well um, might be feeling that we're in a state of constant alert or stress. And again, I say this with full light of understanding what the people of Iran, we can make us imagine actually what it must be like. Imagine this times whatever fill in the blank number what that must feel like for them and how it's affecting them. And when we consider for them to stay consistent or to keep going, how much more challenging that is, it can be very insightful. And it can also serve as a motivation for us that when we consider what they are actually going through, it could inspire and re-motivate. I say that because uh, things like motivation, inspiration, willpower are not these pure things that you either have it or you don't. They usually can come and go in different waves or we get overwhelmed and they go away and then we need to re-motivate ourselves. So I think it could be good to remember those who are suffering and the, really experiencing the suffering. We just are in a way, in a way experiencing the residue of that suffering or seeing it and observing it and maybe experiencing our old suffering. But there are the ones that are constantly in that, that pain and that oppression. That can be a good way to re-motivate ourselves. 
Now, here's the thing. Even if you care a lot about something, even if you do it with love and passion, it, it doesn't mean that you have unlimited resource to do that. So even if you are a new mom or dad and you have a baby, you still need to sleep. You might decrease the amount of sleep you need and still function at some level, but it doesn't mean you now don't need sleep. Even though you love and adore and the most important thing in your life is to take care of that baby, you're still a human being with human needs. And so all of us have to remember that even though we care, it doesn't mean that we have an unlimited sense of being able to do things or to not take care of ourselves. Um, you see doctors, nurses who care about their patients, but they can burn out. They went into it because they cared about taking care of people. But even if we're doing something we're passionate about and we care about and we feel good about, it doesn't mean we can do it in an unlimited way. So we do have to be mindful of this, not to withdraw our support for the people of Iran. Of course, that's not something I'm suggesting. I'm saying this because I want us to be able to do it for the long haul, to not burn out and to give up. That if we're going to do this for a long time, which seems likely will be needed from us, we will have to keep ourselves taken care of at some level and find a balance that we can keep doing this, keep staying informed, keep spreading the word, sharing it with others, keep being creative in the ways that you can help in whatever ways that you can, but realize that if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be able to keep doing that. And that's what's going to be needed from all of us. So you might have noticed these things, the feelings that you're going through, this sense of being on alert. It's like your fight or flight system is activated, ready to fight, even though there's nothing for us to physically fight, but we feel like we're fighting a, an enemy together. But we are not in physical threat personally, those of us that are outside of Iran, but we can feel that way. So your body might feel that way. Taking care of ourselves is an imperative and taking care of one another something i've seen is that there has been a lot of unity amongst people in our support of supporting so we help each other so we can keep going and i think we need that check in on your friends i know it's those cliche things we hear of checking in on your friends and asking them but really genuinely ask them how they're doing and most people pretty quickly tell you they are hanging in there or barely making it or not doing so well but we need one another uh, to go through this just like any painful, hard thing that we go through, uh, it's never easy and it doesn't become easy because people are around, but it does become easier if we are supporting each other. So reach out to loved ones, connect, share how you're feeling, what you're going through. Um, sometimes share some laughs and other things. I think there can be this feeling that because of what's going on in Iran, we have to, you know, we shouldn't be enjoying life. And it's not to say that we ignore what's going on there, but we at times need to make sure we're taking care of ourselves and we're okay, which includes even laughing or being joyous at times as well. I don't think we need to feel guilty about those things. That's still part of life that we need to experience and to take care of while also staying focused on the people of Iran and doing what we can to continue to support them. So on that light again, I hope I do see you Saturday if you're in the LA area, downtown, 11 a.m. But really, I hope you look um, online. Sometimes information with these things spreads a little bit uh, sparingly. I've had a hard time to find locating where the ones in Los Angeles are because often they're planned last minute. There's not some official way of promoting it, but people are spreading the word. So I hope you will start looking now because Saturday seems to be this big global day of action. I'm sure there will be many of them, but I hope if you're in the California, Southern California area, I see you here in downtown LA, but if not, see you wherever you are around the world. 
posting and sharing about your support for the people of Iran. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, I was talking earlier about in a way of looking at personality, looking at ourselves and how we might not express various aspects of ourselves we might not even give ourselves the chance to know what's there it might make us make us anxious to uh, try new things or to express new things or new ways of being because it, it could scare us or make us anxious to not know what's going to happen and so that was thinking of it in this very comfortable way of just like in our own lives and those of us what we can do or how we can live our lives but i was i was thinking about um, during the commercial break, I've, I mentioned the last time too, sometimes, you know, Amir here in the studio, we'll talk for a minute or two. And he showed me some video of these women in Iran who are giving free hugs. And maybe you've seen this. I've seen a few videos. The one he showed, I hadn't seen before. Um, and it's quite beautiful to see that. And usually they're not wearing a hijab and they're giving hugs. Like all of it is things that are not supposed to be happening there. And so talking about this idea of how easy it is like you know let's be ourselves express ourselves it makes me think of how sad it is that for the people of iran especially for the women of iran it's not like they're thinking can i express this part of myself or i can't so much of who they can be and how they can be has been completely taken away from them completely taken away from even being a possibility to express certain parts of themselves and this is why you know sometimes people talk so much about hijab and of course it is about hijab but it's about so much more than that about being oppressed and so much of you having to be suppressed about who you are and to be yourself so showing hair or showing yourself and i think sometimes even you hear people and you see some horrible things said by people of like someone i know this woman was part of the iranian government saying these women want to do these things horrible things that maybe you saw this i won't even give too much light to it but thinking that it's about being a certain way or expressing something but really it's about just being able to express yourself and be yourself and having the opportunity to be whatever that wants to be and whatever you want to be whoever you want to be and to act in the ways that all humans can get to act and so we can see completely in Iran that the men have no limits in those things that they can do, but women have so many of these restrictions that don't allow them to live the way they want to live and to just have that choice. So even people say it's not about hijab being good or bad, it's that it's mandatory. And then when you get punished in the case of Mahsa with death, that's completely unacceptable. It's the mandatory nature of it that makes it a problem, that makes it an issue. So as I was thinking about that, I was like, wow, it's so easy as a psychologist here to talk about, yeah, be yourself and express yourself. And what's the part of yourself you haven't gotten to express and to look at that? Um, but it's short-sighted to not consider the reasons why people don't express themselves or haven't always expressed themselves isn't out of their own choice. Sometimes we don't give them that choice. So it was just something that came to my attention. I've thought about it before, but it came to my mind in a way just seeing that video of them hugging it seems like something so so basic 
considering it a basic human right or just a basic form of expression, but something that's considered completely unacceptable there. It's really heartbreaking to see how limited um, things have been and continue to be, all in a way of just trying to have power or to enforce power and to keep power. Um, you know, I talked about this book on revolutions and there, you know, a sentence, something like, uh, you know, people, the elite rarely voluntarily give up their power. And that's what we've seen throughout history, that people who have the power, which means wealth and status and everything that comes with it, almost never voluntarily give it away or be like, oh, you know what? Yeah, we don't need to be in power anymore. We don't want to have this. Let's give it to people or let's make things more fair. And so that's exactly what we see happening in Iran, that it's not something that the people who are in power want to serve or are doing something good. It's really just for themselves that they are there. It's not for the people. I did want to touch on some other things related to this book on revolutions that I, I was talking about. I heard Erica Chenoweth and I did see some of her research and these things, we always want to be careful when we have some strict number that is like important, but she found in looking at different movements that turn into revolutions, there seemed to be this critical number of having at least 3.5% of the people actively engaged in the movement. And now that doesn't mean in support of the movement or doesn't mean against the, the regime in power, it means actively involved. So I don't know for Iran, I don't know, 3.5%, probably something like 3 million people. I'm not sure if it's like 80 million people, just trying to do some rough math in my head, um, actively engaged. And again, it doesn't mean if you meet that number, magically, everything is going to change. But there was that number. And I thought that was interesting. It doesn't sound like a lot in a way it does sound like a lot. But um, that's something that some of her research has found. But importantly, as I said before, when we look at nonviolent versus violent uh, movements and turning into revolutions and being able of achieving their aims or some of their aims, it's important that it's not just the people in the movement that um, the public that stay involved. You do need pillars of support from the government to, to get involved in some way or some cracks in that, that then some of them might defect and support. So this is why actually I've seen people post videos where we see either soldiers or secret police or plain clothes police who seem to be joining the protesters. Um, those can be really meaningful moments or meaningful movements that things that are happening. Of course, not just one or two people. It needs to be in large numbers or some significant amount. But those can be important things that likely will will have to happen and, and need to happen. And so I hope people can, will read these types of books, those of us who are trying to support the people of Iran to better understand what's going on and, and what we can hope for. And again, recognizing that likely it will take a long time. Reading this book, I don't know if it made me more hopeful or less, um, maybe a little bit of both, but I also think we have to be aware of how we share these messages with other people, as I said, we can impact what's happening or impact the the resolve or the morale of people. I saw um, Farid Zakaria, and so I like his, his first name because um, it's the same as mine, but on CNN he has a show. And he had a few minutes. He's talked about what's happening in Iran a few times in, in recent weeks. But he actually talked about Erica Chenoweth's research, or at least her database, where she talks about violent and nonviolent 
or movements and looking at the very recent years, like 2019 till now or something like that, and how most of them have not been successful. And so he expressed in this kind of pessimistic way that likely it won't lead to anything. And yeah, of course, that, that sentiment exists. I, I, I hear it all the time, too. And I think we all feel it even when we're hopeful that we don't know what's going to be the result and we can't know. Um, but this goes back to what I was saying about how when we comment on something, we have to be aware that we're not just commenting in a vacuum or commenting and it's just about something and it has no impact, but that can impact people. So it, it reminds you of when people talk about polls for elections or they talk about, you know, different uh, statistics. So it looks like this person is for sure going to win. And that number has... And uh, it's measuring something, but it also has an impact because if people find out, oh, you know what, this person's winning for sure. Well, then the motivation to vote for those people in support of that person actually goes down. So if they say, oh, it's 80%, they have 80% of the vote. So then people think, well, my vote really doesn't make a difference. And it can make people on the 20% side possibly more motivated. Okay, we have to make it more or we have to make it closer. So they get more involved and now they might actually vote more. And, and then we see that uh, the results are different from what the polls predicted. But the polls have an impact. They're not just happening in a vacuum or happening outside of the whole system. So I was a little bit disappointed in what he had said because it made it seem like he was saying it's not very hopeful, it's probably going to end with nothing, just, you know, lives lost and and those things. And, and that's, uh, yeah, it can be an opinion or has some reasoning even behind it or some thoughts behind it, but it does have an impact or can have an impact. And I think that's important. So I try to be mindful of that as I'm talking because one thing I also think is important, I've mentioned this before, is that to speak for the people there or to speak for the people of Iran or suggest what they should be doing, I think is something we have to be very careful about. And I do hear people making these kinds of messages saying they should, uh, you know, act in this way or not in this way. And this goes back to this whole notion of affecting people by what we do. I understand that. And you're thinking you're having a positive impact, but I think it's something we have to be aware of that when we're asking people to risk their lives, sacrifice themselves potentially in some way, it's very easy from far away to say it, but the people who are there actually have to pay the price and the consequence, and we do want to leave it to them to make that kind of decision. That's not, I think, for anyone else to make, to tell someone to do this or to fight or to potentially lay down their life or risk their life in some way. So I do think, yes, we, we get excited. Of course, we all want this to happen. We want change. We know it's unfair. We're angry. Um, we, we want to make something happen, but I think realizing that we're, when we're not the ones that have to actually take action, it's very easy from far away to do that. It's, it's not the same because it's something so uh, insignificant in comparison, but it's like when someone gives you financial advice that they are not themselves doing. They don't have any skin in the game. So like, oh yeah, you should do this, put all your money in that. And then if it's you know good or bad, they don't have to worry about the accountability or anything, and they don't have to be the one that pays the price if it goes bad, but maybe you're risking your life savings on it. So similarly here, it's literally their lives, so I think we have to be mindful of that. I do think for those of us outside of Iran, keeping up the hope is important as far as we keep spreading their voices and their words. That's all that we can do. Share what's happening and sp spread it around, talk to people, go to the protests, but don't think about making that decision for them. And about going to the protests, I've talked about this before, that I hope people don't downplay what their support can mean. 
Um, every time I've posted something about Iran, I've gotten messages from people in Iran thanking me, saying thank you for being our voice, thank you for showing support, thank you that you care, um, which is very heartbreaking when you consider what they're going through and how small it is to do something like that. But I do think it's a recognition that they want us to amplify their voices because they have been silenced for, for so long within their own country, but even around the world. You know, Iran has been my whole lifetime seen as this place that's this negative place that really almost doesn't even exist, that shouldn't even be there, or even we can't even think of going, or people can't think of going. So it is this place that can be very invisible for so many people where they have assumptions or they assume the Iranian government is the Iranian people or that the Iranian people support and love the Iranian government which is not the case and so they're seen as one and the same and because of that there might be this lack of support or seeing them in a certain way as people who are worthy of of getting that support or that deserve to be helped in some level and so the more we show their face well show their videos i should say of what's going on I, I i hesitated to say faces because of that consequence but show what's happening there and what people are going through and humanize the people of iran and what they're going through that i think can be helpful but coming back to things like the protests i hope you will show up as i've said several times and i'll reiterate don't focus on a specific result especially in the short term you might not see any result today, tomorrow, in a week that you can tangibly see. Focus on your responsibility. Am I doing everything I can in this situation to help? Can I look back this week and feel like I did the most that I can do? Will I look back at this whole experience and feel that I, I did everything I could and I was supporting? That's what I want us to focus on is that responsibility and that sense of duty to do what we can do. Knowing that it helps or not, you might not know. It's like you're seeing uh, a child is drowning in a pool and you might not know if it's going to help, but can you just walk by? No, you have to jump in. You don't know if you're going to save their life. You don't know if you'll do anything, but you have to jump in and do something because could you walk by and not think, well, you know, maybe he was going to drown anyway. No, you could never live with yourself if you did that. And so similarly, we don't know the result of, of being supportive in this way, or we don't know if it's going to create a tangible impact, or we don't know the result of all of this, what it's going to be. But I do think it's important for us to stay consistent in our support and stay consistent in what we're doing. And showing up to these protests, you showing up as one person doesn't change much, but all of us showing up together does make a difference. And actually, I saw Amir and his wife, Roya, on uh, Saturday at the one in Sherman Oaks, and you do feel the sense of connection and camaraderie with the people there, and we're all supporting one thing, and hopefully we can keep motivating each other through that. I do see people asking each other, are you going? Let's go together. Let's do this. Let's be part of this together. And I think that's good because we're going to need that support. Individually, we're more likely to burn out. Individually, we're more likely to give up. But together, we can continue we can make sure we're taking care of ourselves and each other, but support each other as we move towards helping as much as we can. So I hope I do see you this coming Saturday. Please check your uh, local area for what might be happening. And look, if there isn't one in your area, you can plan one. A lot of these are being planned by people just last minute. They find a way to get a permit or the space and they go somewhere. Don't think that you need to wait for some organization or group to, to create it and tell you to come. You can be the reason why it happens. So that brings us to the end of 
today's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendegi Azati. Thank you.